Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Once again, this sermon, because I am following the flow of Scripture, has a, a couple of different components to it. And starting in the 12th verse, we're going to read a short passage that has to do with Jesus promising the Holy Spirit to come and be the guide for his disciples. We, we know within the context that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And if you keep that in mind as we read this, it opens up a dimension to this that we don't always see when we open the Bible and read it and think that he's speaking to us only. Now, certainly the Bible applies to us and speaks to us. But we don't want to miss that original context either as it opens up certain things that we miss without understanding that. So as he's speaking to his disciples, he tells them once again about the work of the Holy Spirit. In the 12th verse, let me read just a few verses. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said he will take of mine and declare it to you. Now I back up to that 13th verse where he says, the spirit of truth has come and he will guide you into all truth. I've been into Mexico a number of times in my life. I've gone as a tourist probably three or four times. I've gone on missions work a couple of times, went down and helped build churches there. One of the times that I went into Mexico, the most recent time, Ann and I took our boys when they were still living at home, and they were totally unimpressed. Worst thing I ever did with the family. They wanted to get out of there. But when I was still living at home, and maybe around 12, 13, 14 years old, uh, our family took another trip into Mexico, and this time my dad decided maybe the most efficient thing to do would be get us a guide, rather than just going over and trying to find our way around. So there was a, a man uh, with a taxi cab who was advertising that uh, for a reasonable fee, he would put us in his taxi cab and go around and show us the sights and make strategic stops. So we decided that would be a good idea, and it had its merits. Getting a guide helps. Now, I'd I had some reservations about it when one of the first things that this guy did was took us by and showed us there is a weeping willow tree. Well, we've got weeping willow trees all over. I didn't go to Mexico 
for my guide to point out a weeping willow. So I'm not sure that was the best thing that could have happened. But otherwise, it, it proved to be a fairly good trip. Now, how many people here do we have? Uh, your hunters or your fishermen, fisherwomen, and you've ever hunted or fished with a guide. Anybody here? Yeah, hands going up all over the place. <laughs> I got like two. <laughs> all right, so you two will relate real well to this. <laughs> the rest of you can occupy yourselves for a couple of minutes. I've known people in my life who were hunting or fishing guides. I had a man in my church in California that was a bear hunting guide. And he had bear hunting dogs. And for a fee, he knew the mountains very well, very familiarly. And he would take people out bear hunting and most of the time come back with a bear. I knew another man in the same church that had a cabin out in Colorado. And for a substantial fee, like $5,000 a head, he would fly men, a group of men out to this cabin, and he would be a guide, a hunting guide for them. I knew another man in my same church that was a fishing guide on the local lake. So you could take your chances and go out and throw your hook in and see what you could, you could get, or you could get the guide who knew the hot spots for the fish. And I say all that just to demonstrate that the value of a guide is it saves you a lot of time because they know where they're going, they know what they're doing. They'll get it done efficiently for you, and they'll get you the best chances of results. Now, Jesus was telling the disciples, I'm not going to leave you to make you find your way through the rest of this journey by your own wits. I'm going to give you a guide. That means the Holy Spirit served as that expert who knew the way, who understood all the dangers and all the turns and all the things you had to avoid and the best path to go. And he was promising his disciples, the Holy Spirit will guide you. Now up to this point, who was guiding the disciples? They followed Jesus. He knew the way. They trusted him. Now they're going to enter into this next phase where they're not following a tangible person, but they're following the Holy Spirit, and they have to learn how to follow the Holy Spirit. I wonder, as you just assess yourself today, how many of you feel like you are adept at following the Holy Spirit. Just think about that for a minute. Ask yourself, assess yourself, how good am I at following the Holy Spirit? Now, if you say, I don't know how to follow the Holy Spirit, then we've got some work to do, don't we? If you rate yourself very well, maybe you need to be a mentor to somebody else and teach them what it means to follow the Holy Spirit. And sadly enough, there might be some of you that this is just totally foreign to you. How often in this past week did you rely on the Holy Spirit to lead you? Is this a daily thing? 
Or is this once in a while when you get yourself in trouble and you just cry out in general to God, Help! You pray, Lord, lead me. But I wonder, have you really developed in your life, Holy Spirit, guide me. Give me understanding. Because the promise to the disciples was not limited to them. God will give the Holy Spirit to you as a guide. He has given the Holy Spirit. You just need to seek His advice. He'll lead you. He'll help you in decision-making. But it doesn't necessarily come easy when you begin that process. You really have to practice and learn how to follow the Holy Spirit. Let me show you one place where you can start following the Holy Spirit. It has to do with what we commonly call conscience. When the Holy Spirit checks you, and says, you should not do that. It's probably easier to hear the message from the Holy Spirit saying, don't, than it is to learn that message from the Holy Spirit saying, do. That takes a little more practice. But the Holy Spirit ministering, remember last week, judging this world because they don't understand sin and righteousness and judgment, He's come to judge them for their, 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 their poor performance in those areas. So he's quite qualified to guide you in your life and tell you, don't do this. This is not proper. This is not appropriate. It's called conviction. When's the last time you have felt the convicting power of the Holy Spirit? And when's the last time that you felt that, that you plowed right on through it and said, but I have my own plans. I want to do what I want to do. That's not going to get it. That's not following the Holy Spirit. And I can tell you, if you are not following the guide, if you're ignoring the warnings of the Holy Spirit, you'll never make it to the next phase of following the Holy Spirit when He is encouraging you to do something. You've got to get sensitive in the places where He is discouraging you and warning you before you can develop the other one. So start with keeping your conscience sensitive, your heart, your mind, your soul sensitive to what the Holy Spirit says. Don't do this. Do you know what the price is if you continue to ignore that? You just get a heart that is hardened. You do things without any guilt, without any compunction. Young people need to learn this. You just can't keep ignoring the prompting of the Holy Spirit and think you're going to grow up normal. You're going to grow up abnormal. You won't be able to feel the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. You won't sense that warning signal when you get ready to do the wrong thing. And who wants a calloused heart and a calloused soul? One example of the guide that we can think of goes back to the story of Israel, the children of Israel. 
They were led out of Egyptian bondage. And they're coming out of Egypt is this vast wilderness. And God offers himself that I will guide you. I'll help you avoid the dangers of the wilderness, the natural dangers, the wild animals. I'll help you avoid the, uh, <clears throat> the warring marauders of the desert. I'll keep you safe from them. I'll take you in the path that will get you where you're going safely. And, you know, they, they made it to the crossing of the Jordan, Jordan fairly quickly. God guided them. He got them there. And they were safe. But then, of course, they messed up and they didn't want to cross because of fear. And God sent them back to wander around the desert for 40 years till they got their act together. I hope it doesn't take us 40 years to get our act together. Here they are going round and round in the desert, can't find their way out. But God's guiding them. You remember the, the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night? He's guiding them. And Isaiah looked back on that incident, <clears throat> and he referred to that as the Holy Spirit guiding them. So it was God, but Isaiah recognizes the role the Holy Spirit played in guiding the children of Israel. Now Jesus says the Holy Spirit will provide the same services to you and me, the New Testament people of God. To us, the world is the wilderness. We are the sojourners. And there are hidden dangers lurking in our path ahead. Folks, the, the ugly truth is this. Here we are sitting in this church today, and everybody seems to be relatively comfortable. You don't know what lies ahead for you tomorrow. Wouldn't it be beneficial for you to have the Holy Spirit to guide you? I want you to become aware. Are you really prepared to navigate your way through the next seven days till Sunday without God's help? I don't think any of us really, when you get to think about it, want to have to do that. There's been some shocking times in my life when I just had to stop and thank God that he was guiding me. Now, I don't know how many of you have had this experience, but, you know, my suspicion is that it isn't just me. And it kind of goes like this. There's little variations to it, but it kind of goes like this. I'm behind that one annoying driver I just can't get around. They won't get out of the way. There's no passing. I want to get going. I don't have to be anywhere. I just want to get around them. Until I happen upon a horrible accident. And it's, this has happened sometimes in my life. Where if I'd have been in a hurry, it looks very apparent I would have at least got a good look if not been in that. 
And I sit back and I say, well, thank you, God, for that pesky driver that you put in front of me. What a fool I was. You know, you just begin to see things in your life where you realize that those inconveniences in life, that we, we think they're inconveniences, are sometimes the guide taking care of us. How God can appoint people to direct us, to spare us. So the moral of the story is be patient when you're driving. And, and I have other experiences in my life that have to do with timing just like that. That had I done it in my timing, that's what would have happened. Whether it has to do with finances or making a purchase that I was delayed or, or whatever. It, when you get all said and done and you realize, had I done this in my timing, how bad that would have been for me and my family and my life. But I've got a guide. And sometimes that guide, being so good, guides me even when I'm not consciously conferring with the guide because I've submitted my life to the guide. Guide me. Protect me. Take care of me. Show me the right way. And I'll walk in that way. I want to move to the second part of this sermon as we entirely leave that concept of the guide behind us now. And in the 20th verse, Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. And notice the powerful contrasts in what Jesus has just said. Weeping and lamenting at the very same time that the world is not sad. They're not weeping. They're not lamenting. You are, but what's the world doing? They're rejoicing. And that's an awkward place to be in our life. When you're the one that is burdened and the world's throwing a party. You're the one that is grieved and the world is oblivious. And you're kind of like, what is wrong with you people? Don't you see the famine and the tribulation and the pestilence all around us? And they're just celebrating and you're grieved. And there's other reasons why you may lament and grieve while the world rejoices. So you see the contrasts in here. And then also you have the contrast, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. And that's what I'm going to deal with as I continue in the second half of this sermon. The first and primary application when Jesus spoke this obviously goes back to him talking to his disciples face to face. He said, you're going to be very sorrowful. The world is going to be rejoicing. And you understand what the fulfillment of that was because Jesus has been telling them, I'm going to be leaving you but the Holy Spirit is going to come. And as you get through this process of realizing I have left and then experiencing what it means to have the Holy Spirit to lead you, there's going to be that little dark time that you're going to have to walk through. Folks, we all, from time to time, have that little dark time between those two points 
where we felt comfortable with God and where we finally feel like whatever God has provided has now kicked in, we've got that little limbo era in our life. You've been there. You'll have a few more of them if you continue this earthly journey very long. Very long. That point from leaving that place of safety to arriving in that other place of safety, and you're between the two. So between that time, when Jesus died, and the Holy Spirit had not yet revealed himself in a way that they would recognize his power and this new role that he would place in leading them, there Jesus is in the tomb. And when Jesus said, you're going to be very sorrowful, indeed they were. They were gripped with indescribable sorrow. The kind of, of sorrow that every one of us have felt at some point in our life. It seemed like there was this dark cloud that descended on the disciples from the very moment that Jesus ate that Passover meal with them and described, take, eat, this is my body, and drink this cup, this is the New Testament in my blood. And, and it seemed like from that point there was just this, this heavy cloud that hung over the disciples because none of that was real inspiring, joyous, good news. So they're beginning to feel anxious, a little depressed, fearful. And as we're reading from that point through the rest of this, you can still see that, see that, that cloud of despair hanging on his disciples. But Jesus had prophesied it's going to get worse. You think you're feeling bad now? You're going to get in the throes of the deepest sorrow perhaps you have ever felt. The anxiety that they felt at that point about the uncertainty of their future, turning to this deep sorrow as they witnessed the trial, the beating, the crucifixion unfolding before their very eyes, culminating in that limp, lifeless body being laid in a tomb. And their mentor is now dead. They didn't understand he was going to live again. They're sorrowful. They're deeply depressed. And that's what we have felt from time to time, that nauseous feeling we all have when finally the funeral services are over. We go home alone. The pain of loneliness and aloneness has just begun in our lives. We know how difficult that is. Now you're beginning to feel a little bit of the sorrow that the disciples felt for this man that they so deeply and truly loved, admired with everything within them, and he's in the tomb, and they're back at the house, and they can't sleep. And they're wondering what's going to become of us that point between when Jesus walked with them and when the Holy Spirit would come and comfort them and lead them, they're in that desert. So obviously the occasion for the disciples is deep sorrow and anxiety. It's unparalleled. We'll never experience that same situation exactly that they experienced. But we all understand sorrow. And some of you know sorrow deeper than I've ever known it. I was having a men's 
study group in one of my churches years ago. We went through a book called The Man in the Mirror, and it gave rise for an opportunity for the men to, to contribute from the depths of their own life and experiences. And these are men that I had pastored for a few years and become friends with and come to appreciate and, and fellowship with them and been in their home. And I'm sitting across the table, and I listen as the subject matter had just guided us to this point. And, and it became appropriate for this man to give a little testimony. He told about when he was out mowing the yard, and his little kids were out playing, his little daughter, his little son. And the little daughter come running to him and saying, Something's wrong with little brother. He didn't pay much attention to it, but eventually she got his attention. And he went over to see what was wrong. He had picked up something out of his lawnmower and flung it across and had killed his little baby boy. And I sit there in stunned silence. And I looked at this man and I said, I've known you for how long now? I mean, I'm talking to myself. And I said, I've known this man for how long? I never would have guessed you suffered that kind of deep sorrow. I listened as another man now opened up and told the tragic story of the loss of his son, the tragic loss of his son. And I'm thinking, here's another one. I've been in your home. I've fellowshiped you. I never knew this about you. I've pastured you people for 10 years. I, I consider you my friends. But there's undoubtedly stories in your life that I don't know. Sorrow that you have endured. I, I haven't endured at this point in my life. Yet you carry on. You found that strength somehow to get back in life and become functional. I don't know how you lay that sorrow aside. I don't know how you do it. I find myself thinking I'm not, I'm not a fraction of the person that that man was in California or that other man or even you. And I, say, I think if I'd have had to walk where you walk, they would have had to commit me. I don't know how you do this. You understand sorrow. Some of us understand some sorrow. Others of you, indescribable. But there's two things found in this passage that minister effectively to people in sorrow. The first is this. Jesus knows. When Jesus said to his disciples, you're going to go through great sorrow, he was stating something that was going to happen before they even knew it. Now, it's one thing to understand. Jesus understands your sorrow when you're in sorrow. It puts a whole other dimension on it to understand. Jesus understood your sorrow before you even knew you were going to have sorrow. He knew it was coming. He was preparing you. And it was going to be something that would shatter your world. But he was preparing you. And you didn't even know it. 
You didn't know it was coming. But Jesus knows. He knew what was coming for the disciples. And he had prepared them all along as he mentored them for the sorrow they were going to have to bear. He was making provision for them to get through it. He knew the depth of the sorrow before it ever happened. It's somehow wonderfully therapeutic to know somebody understands what I'm going through. Jesus not only knows as a matter of information, but he knows and understands as a matter of personal experience. Because Isaiah described Christ as a man of sorrows. How many of you can quote that? A man of sorrows acquainted with, how many of you know? Grief. The prophet said he knows because he has experienced it. Now when I'm going through difficult times in my life, I want to find somebody who has been through this. I want somebody who can talk the kind of talk that I'm trying to talk. I want to find somebody that I don't even have to say it. All I have to do is just look at them and they say, I know. Been through the same thing you've been through. Maybe even going through it at the same time. That helps me. To know I'm not the only individual on this earth of 7 billion people who is going through this. And I find somebody and I say, talk to me. Tell me what you were thinking as you went through this. Help me understand what's happening to me. Show me how you survived. I want to know all of these things. So Jesus knew their sorrow before it happened. He knew it not only as a matter of information, but he knew it because he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Now Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on the man of sorrows. Spurgeon was brilliant. He cranked out 10, 15 sermons a week sometimes. Did not repeat himself. Did not have any notes. I'm, I, I'm pathetic. He preached like he was reading out of a book. Flawless orator. Maybe you can appreciate what Charles Spurgeon said. As he says, points out that the Bible does not say Jesus was a sorrowful man. But he said he was a man of sorrows. What's the difference? A sorrowful person is somebody who is experiencing sorrow, but otherwise they're not just a sorrowful person, a man of sorrows, a woman of sorrows. But when it says specifically he is a man of sorrows, you're talking about the essence of this person, not a one-time experience that they had. You're talking about the essence of it. That means more than a person who tasted sorrow. It means a man in whom sorrow had become a vitally integrated part. A man so thoroughly acquainted with grief, it became a part of his identity. Spurgeon says, some men are men of pleasure. 
some men are men of wealth. And when we say men of wealth, it doesn't mean I just happen to know that when I met him, he had a roll of cash on his person. But that was just a one-time thing. No, a man of wealth, we understand it's part of their identity. They have a depth of resource there. But Jesus was a man of sorrows, Spurgeon says. Jesus and sorrow might well have changed names. Spurgeon said we might call him a man of eloquence, for never a man spoke like he did. We might call him a man of love, for there was never a man who loved like this. We might call him a man of holiness, because we find no fault in him. We might call him a man of labors, for he was always about his father's business. Still, as conspicuous as all of these, yet had we gazed upon Christ and been asked afterwards what was the most striking peculiarity in him, we should have said his sorrows. He was not only a man of sorrows, he was a man preeminently of sorrows. Nobody knew more sorrow than Jesus. He was acquainted with grief. How many of you people have had your best friend disappoint you? How many of you people have had your children not live up your, to your expectations? How many of you have had to deal with things your children have done that it has sent you into terrible sorrow and grief? And say, how could a child from my loins possibly do something as hideous as this? You know the sorrow of the disappointment in those you trust and those you love and those in whom your lifeblood flows. Can you magnify that by a thousand times and think of the sorrow that Jesus carried when those that were from his own creative act, as he looks at them and they despise him and they hate him and they fight him and they mock him. Can you imagine the sorrow this man carried not for a temporary time, but he carried every day of his life as he looked at humanity. He was the creator of all. And how far they had strayed from what he wanted for their life. No wonder he was a man of sorrows. The whole world broke his heart. And there was no respite from it. Not a minute. And the only way to fix that, the only way to break that deep sorrow of the failure of his brothers and sisters and God's children as he said I'm going to have to go and pay the ultimate price and die for them before this sorrow can be broken and Jesus says that this sorrow is like that of childbirth a woman, when she's in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. As soon as she's given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, and he repeats it, therefore, you now have sorrow. But I'll see you again, and your heart will rejoice. And your joy no one will take from you. See, men can only superficially, informationally understand this. We only think we understand. Women who have given birth understand what Jesus said. 
Jesus said the woman experiences sorrow when she suddenly realizes the hour has come. And she realizes we cannot change our mind now. There is no stopping this. Everything has been set in motion. The moments that lie ahead, there is going to be indescribable pain. And the focus at this point for the moment is not the joy of that child she's going to hold. The focus of this moment is, what was I thinking? The excruciating pain I'm going to endure. I've got to deal with this first before I can ever think about a baby. But the astounding miracle is how quickly the entire countenance of the birthing woman can change from the deepest throes of anguish to immediate joy at the sight of her baby. From one moment screaming in agony to moments later a wash in the unspeakable joy, laughing and crying at the same time, screaming now but laughing and crying two seconds later because it's that moment when they realize the worst is finally over. And there's nothing left but the presence of this beautiful baby. And out of this utter chaos and near death came this beautiful miracle. Now the odds are incalculable that I will never give birth to a baby. But I've tasted some sorrow. I haven't tasted that sorrow. I've been in what seemed to me to be the deepest, darkest pit, drowning in despair, wondering in that moment, if I could ever see the light of day again. Finding it almost impossible to believe that my life would ever return to any semblance of normalcy. How many of you have been in that pit? Have you been so far down where you thought, I'll never be normal again? This has so impacted my life. Life as I knew it is officially over. And I'll never be the same. You may have been there because of broken relationships. You may be there because of the death of a loved one. And you thought you could never function again. You may be there simply because of the loss of a career. And you poured your life into it. And suddenly you have nothing because the company downsized. They don't need you anymore. You may be there because of financial disaster. We go back to 1929 and the crash of the stock market and the people who walked over to the window and jumped out because their money was gone and they didn't think they had anything to live for. You may be there because somebody has brought a lawsuit against you that threatens to take everything you have and you just don't know what's going to happen. You think it's over, it's done, it's finished, it's through. The deepest sorrow. I've counseled many people who have sat across from my desk who, because of whatever reason that they were in complete sorrow, they found it literally impossible to see any hope, any future. It looked as dark to them as they could possibly imagine it could be. And without fail, one truth that I consistently try to get to settle into their spirit is this. And that is the sun is going to shine again one of these days. God is going to drive the dark clouds of despair away, and it's going to be okay one of these days. Sometimes they get it, and sometimes they don't. 
But I have to keep telling them it's going to be okay. And the psalmist said it so perfectly when he said in the 30th Psalm, weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. The sun is going to shine again. How many of you have seen the sun come up in your life when you thought it would never shine again? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? When you thought it was all over, when you thought it never would be good for you again. And God drove the clouds away. That's the hope we have. People have many different reasons why they go through sorrow. Sometimes that sorrow will pass with a little time. And sometimes people may carry their sorrow for their entire life. Sometimes they may never find release until they enter that eternal rest. The kind of sorrow and anguish we experience as a result, though, of trying to love God and serve Him, the kind of sorrow we feel as we battle hell for the very lives and souls of our children, the kind of sorrow that we feel when this hostile world turns against Christ and Christians and Christianity, that sorrow born purely as a result of your faith in Christ, I can promise you that that sorrow, I can promise you that sorrow is going to turn to joy when you realize everything you went through was just temporary. Everything you did to try and stand for the, the values and the morals and the principles of the Bible and God has put in you, every struggle that you had when you realize there's all for a purpose, it's all going to be okay, I can tell you your sorrow is going to turn into joy. Now, I, I realize we don't always see all the good that we're able to do for God as we try to live for Him. I know the enemy works on you because he works on me. I know the enemy tries to get some of you at some times just to give up your walk with Christ. I know he does that. I know he suggests to you it takes too much energy. It just takes, takes a, a, an incredible amount of effort every day just to try and walk the straight and narrow when all these other people around here are not interested in the straight and narrow. The wide and the crooked is all they care about. And they seem to be well-adjusted and happy and prosperous and happier than me. And the enemy says, why don't you just go and quit trying this struggle of trying to live for God. It's difficult to continue to keep your Christian witness day after day, week after week, year after year. It's difficult. And the enemy says, why not just quit? But one of these days, all the struggle and all the anxiety and all the sorrow you experienced in trying to live for God, one of these days, God's going to pour out the joy on you. And it won't be the world who's going to be rejoicing at that time because when you'll be rejoicing because you have realized you have fulfilled God's purpose in your life, that's when the world is going to be weeping. Your time is coming for the party. Your time is coming for the joy. The world will not join in with you at that time. But it's coming when you realize God's in charge. Just like 
the birth of the baby, turning the sorrow into the joy. Just like the tomb and giving birth to the risen Savior and turning the disciples' deep sorrow into wondrous joy, going from one minute and be completely lost and forlorn and doomed, and there is no purpose, to seeing Jesus walk through the wall and make his appearance, and suddenly they're happy again. It can happen just like that. Just like that, we know that whatever sorrow we face in trying to live for God and serve Him will all turn to joy. And I might even suggest perhaps the deeper the sorrow, the greater the joy. No matter how great the struggle is to continue to be His disciple and faithfully do His work, don't be discouraged. I am concerned about the salvation of every one of you. I'm concerned about the things that some of you are going through that I don't even know. I've been in the ministry long enough and seen too many times when it looked like you were doing just fine, but all of a sudden, you're gone. You're missing. You finally made that step where you turned your back on God, and you were here last Sunday, but you're not coming back. I've seen it too many times when the family was just chugging along and everything looks fine, and the next Sunday, somebody has left. The husband is left, the wife is left, and things are shattered. I've seen it happen just that quick. And if I can say today, keep on holding on. I don't care what the struggle is to serve God. You have really no other options. You've got to fight with everything within you. You've got to strain with every fiber in your muscles. You've got to hold on because you can't give it up. The sorrow that you're feeling, the struggle that you're having one of these days, if you just remain faithful, one of these days your sorrow is going to be turned into indescribable joy. Just hold on. Your troubles and your trials may cause you to weep for a night, but friend, joy comes in the morning. Worship team, would you come?